Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley and thank you so much for being with us. There is an awful lot to talk about regarding the Ukraine. Developments are shifting virtually on a day-to-day basis. We're counting into day 12, day 13, day 14 as we go through this week. And it appears as though very little, if anything, is stopping Vladimir Putin's Russia from running over the Ukraine. Even the heroic fight back of the Ukrainian army and, yes, Ukrainian civilians does not seem to stop Russia's advances. Now, there's talk about ceasefires, human corridors, areas where people will be able to evacuate safely. There have been three as of the early part of this week. None of them, according to the Ukrainian government, seems to be working. None of them. Shelling continues even as the corridors are being set up. Now, Vladimir Putin has reportedly met with Israeli Prime Minister Bennett, while Ukrainian President Zelensky has met virtually with members of the U.S. Congress. As the situation evolves, a few things appear to be clear. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine is nothing less than an act of barbarism. Russia has no right to invade its neighbor, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Thousands of Russian and Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian civilians will die. And for what? Putin's expansionist fantasy. No more, no less. Here's why this is scary. The West, as defined by NATO, the EU, etc., has unified, as never before, in fact, in trying to stop this onslaught. They have piled sanctions on top of sanctions on banks, oligarchs, Russian media, the whole nine yards. Nothing, and this is where we have to emphasize, nothing has yet stopped Vladimir Putin or apparently convinced him to back off. I've heard that the expulsion of Russia from the SWIFT mutual payment system hurt. So too have the sanctions on Russia's central bank. Some Western media would have us believe the end is near for the Russian economy. It may be in bad shape. The financial indicators may not be great, but I don't believe it's true that Russia's economy will cause Putin to pause. I just don't believe it. Despite all the sanctions, despite the booting of Russian athletes from a host of sporting endeavors, Putin presses on. Why? That's the question. Why? What does Vladimir Putin know that the West does not seem to know? In a revealing article in Medium, journalist Umer Haq presents what I feel is a compelling case for Putin's intransigence. And he's written, as far as I'm concerned, the most coherent and cohesive series of articles on the invasion of Ukraine as anybody in so-called mainstream media. Now, His theory goes something like this. Russia, China, and the U.S. are locked in a financial triangle that sanctions, unfortunately, will not affect. China needs energy to fund its own expansionist plans, like the Belt and Road Initiative. And, of course, where does China buy its energy? From Russia. And where does China get the money to buy the energy? By selling all manners of goods to, guess who? The West, especially the good old USA. So in effect, U.S. money is funding Putin's war machine. 
I know that's going to be hard for some people to hear and even harder for some people to believe, but the maths don't lie. They really do not. Now, that U.S. money funding Putin's war machine will keep doing so. How much? In 2020, the total Chinese exports to the U.S. were $452.58 billion dollars. $452.58 billion. You don't even want to know what they sell us because the list will take me the rest of this podcast to elucidate. It's incredible. Everything from the guts of Apple laptops to plastic, you name it, the Chinese export it here and export it relatively cheaply. And that's the rub, relatively cheaply. The Chinese take that money and pass it on to Russia. Now, the Chinese are walking a tightrope. They cannot afford to anger the Russians, who they buy from, or the U.S., who they sell to. And no matter how badly the Russian financial markets tank, no matter how many oligarchs get sanctioned, no matter the heroism of the Ukrainian military, and I don't take that lightly, he will continue this fight. Putin knows two things about the West that we do not want to admit to ourselves. We love the cheap goods the Chinese sell to us, and we don't want to go to war, especially our young, who are, in the main, the people who are going to have to fight it. Now, is anyone ready to say that America must radically change its consumption habits to really hurt Russia? And next, of course, there's the media wars that are coming into very, very sharp focus. Putin has upped the ante on his end by having a law passed that mandates up to 15 years in prison. That's right, 15 years for spreading, quote, fake news. That would be information that doesn't totally reflect the Russian narrative. What's interesting to me is that Putin has taken a line quite similar to a former president of the U.S. who refuses to this day, that's right, to this day, to acknowledge he lost an election. Of course, there's no jail time for people who peddle fake news in the West, just big salaries. Putin's law has led Western news outlets to suspend coverage from inside Russia. For how long? Nobody seems to know. No matter which side you're on, censorship of facts and truth makes you wrong. My brother once told me the only way to counter bad speech is with better speech. Does anyone wonder what speech the Russian people are getting these days? Putin's narrative justifies the invasion, even makes it necessary. That means the Russian people, at least a large portion of them, are hearing daily diatribes against both Ukraine and the West. And there are reports, with increasing frequency, uh, I might add, that say that people in the Ukraine who have relatives in Russia have a hard time convincing their Russian kin that they're in fact involved in a war or that this invasion is somehow not justified. You see what people within Russia are consuming versus what some people in the West consider to be the truth of the matter. Now, the mitigating circumstance here is social media which many Russian young people may turn to for a different view. It's from this wellspring of social media content that protests of the invasion inside Russia are coming from.
Now, just the other day, they arrested, I believe it was 3,000 people who had the temerity to participate in a protest inside Russia. And yet, the truth versus fiction back and forth between Putin and the West is not without its pitfalls. The notion that Ukraine deserves Western support because, after all, they're European, is not lost on people who perhaps deserve Western backing but don't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, I say that because this has been expressed in more than one Western media report. Oh, they look just like us. Oh, they're Europeans. And that seems to, for people who are not European, justify inaction in some places and action in the Ukraine. And it's, it's a sad narrative. It's a sad thing to have to deal with because it really shouldn't be that way. But Western inconsistency in the way it involves itself in the affairs of others, whether it be in the Mideast, whether it be in Africa, wherever, then takes that their European narrative and puts it in a totally different context. It may well be inadvertent, but it undermines the support of people who see the hypocrisy such a double standard involves. There's also the question of where the truth actually lies. Do you know? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. So where exactly does truth lie in an information war that's being fought at the same time as the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Some media may report more facts than others, but how can a media consumer be sure? Here's one example. There have been multiple reports of Africans in the Ukraine being turned away at the border as they try to escape to safety. Other reports say Africans, many of them students, get to the front of the border crossing only to be turned back. It's gotten to the point that the African Union has demanded an investigation. On the other hand, I've read reports of African people being treated with compassion and kindness both inside Ukraine and once they've crossed the border, in particular to Poland. So what is the truth? Is it maybe both? As a journalist, I'd have to describe this as conflicting reports and let the listener or the viewer, if I was on television, decide which was true. Media polarization is almost certain to become more problematic with this East-West divide. And speaking of truth, who are we to believe about the depth and reach of sanctions against Russian oligarchs? Here in the UK, there is some skepticism, especially when it comes to the enormous, and I do mean enormous, Russian money that has bought, I should say enormous sums of Russian money, that has bought houses in some of London's toniest neighborhoods. According to Transparency International, who monitors these things, 6.7 billion pounds, not dollars, pounds of questionable money has poured into the London real estate market since 2016. 1.5 billion of that has been traced to people with direct ties to the Russian government. And of course, in this case, the Russian government is Vladimir Putin. 
Time will tell whether the UK government will end up snatching any of the pricey real estate owned by these folks or whether they'll be able to actually manage to unravel the elaborate deals that made people in the financial community called London the laundromat. Sadly, from my perspective, much of what we hear from Western politicians is little more than rhetoric aimed at mollifying both Ukraine and constituents eager for them to, quote, do something. Vladimir Putin appears to be determined to use Ukraine as a buffer. I say determined because I've got no clue what his motive is or what he plans to do next. And let me emphasize this. Any politician or pundit who tells you they know what Putin's doing, what's in his mind, if he's a sociopath, I don't care what they tell you. They're lying to you. They don't know. But they can make a good deal of money speculating. And that's exactly what they're doing, speculating. And as for charging Russia with war crimes, where would war crimes trials be held? In the International Criminal Court, where last time I checked, I could be wrong about this, but the last I checked, the U.S. refused to join the International Criminal Court as a member. And yet, with all that's going on, there's one thing that I believe is being overlooked and obscured. What am I talking about? Stick around. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has, I think, made people rethink their assumptions about many things. I wonder, however, if people have taken into account the cumulative effect all this has had on younger people. No matter what Putin's Russia does in the weeks and months ahead, young people moving forward will have to process the notion that their peers in Ukraine are sleeping in subway stations, going days or even weeks without electricity or water, and even more. This means, for example, that they're not even able to take a bath. Food and medical supplies are running low, not to mention schooling interrupted and the constant anxiety of not knowing if your house will be shelled. That's a lot to put on adults, but imagine for a moment that you're a teenager and teens who don't have to experience life in the firing line will wonder how the adults got to this place. I'm sure there are Ukrainian teenagers who are asking themselves the same question. First there's climate change, then there's COVID, and now this. And I'm not sure that adults, grown folks, have taken into account, taken into account that is, how all of these things have altered the lives of the young. I just don't get the sense that people are paying attention to any of this. I think back to my own youth, which despite all kinds of ups and downs, Lord knows, but it was never subject to multiple lockdowns, a killer virus, a planet on its last leg, and now the prospect of war. Yes, we did have the Vietnam War, but and perhaps climate change was happening, but we weren't paying attention. But we didn't have lockdowns. We did not have uh, the specter of being put out of school and then sent back to school and then put out of school again. These are the kinds of things that young people have to navigate in the 21st century, and I'm not sure 
they deserve it, to be honest with you. I don't think young people deserve any of what people are now having to experience. Adults or children, for that matter. And anyone thought at all about how our children, or in my case, grandchildren, will look at what we've done during our time here on earth? Young people rarely, if ever, start wars, but they can certainly end up fighting it. Is this really, really the best we can do for them? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a perplexing thing. But I see images of youngsters, the kids and grandkids of friends looking so hopeful. This is on Facebook mainly. So full of promise. And I somehow feel that we as adults have failed them. Maybe not as individuals, but as a society. And yes, as a planet. We may have arrested COVID, but we can't seem to arrest the death and carnage of war. What I'm saying here may seem like the height of naivete, but is it naive to ask, no demand, that we actually do better? Or is it that we cannot, in fact, do better? Will we allow deluded dreams of empire to drag a good part of the world into armed conflict? And what of the African continent, a world rich with natural resources and its people exploited for generations? Because, you see, oppressors act in a similar way, no matter their color. They get rich, while the poor fight for crumbs. Imagine, if you can, 75 years from now, when grandchildren are grandparents, and they look back on this time in history. How will we be judged? Maybe we shouldn't want to know. I guess I'm just asking for a friend. And finally, a quick word on the truckers' convoy that arrived just outside D.C. over this past weekend. They circled the Capitol Beltway and caused a bit of disruption, but for what? Their original idea was to protest mask and vaccination mandates in states across the country. Yet they get to D.C., and what do they find? The mandates they found so objectionable are virtually gone. They've even been lifted in those so-called Democrat states and cities where they, where they were at one time most stringent. And it's not even like they can claim credit for the mandate removal. I know they'd like to, but they can't. The vaccines the truckers decry did a much better job at ending them than any trucker protest. I don't care if it's in Canada, the states, wherever. What's interesting is Many, though not all of the protesters, are pledging allegiance to various right-wing organizations and causes. Some wave flags with a certain former president's name on them. Talk about closing the barn door after the horse has run the dirt. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please... Stay well.